Richard Hogan. It's an absolute pleasure. Dr. Richard Hogan, should I say. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm really excited about this conversation. And thank you so much for joining me. Me too, Connor. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations on the book, by the way. Home is where the start is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's going. It's 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 funny. It's like it's it's got its own life now. It's it's out there and it's doing really well. And it was number two in the bestsellers. And I suppose yeah. And every day I'm getting messages from people all over the world telling me that the book meant something to them and that they, uh, I suppose something that tickles me a little bit was when people say to me, "I was disappointed when I was finished it. I didn't want to end it." And mm. that's something that you, when you as a writer, you're trying to you're trying to make something as say as a psychotherapist that people can relate to and that it can help them that's the reason for writing but also that it's interesting because I think for me personally I, I read articles all the time and I'm reading books all the time and I'm reading journals all the time and academic journals and sometimes I, I'm left thinking how could somebody in a house in Cork you know figure out what the hell this is telling them or how could some you know mom up in Kildare figure out what this is about so what, what I'm always trying to do is make something accessible so mm. that there's, you know, I think that's what my I'm good at is distilling down heavy concepts and actually presenting them through nice analogies and kind of going, well, that's actually how you apply it to your life. And that's what I tried to do in the book. And I embedded my own story into it because I thought my story was the story of so many people in this country. And I think globally, maybe growing up with addiction or growing up with dysfunction or growing up with, you know, negative experiences as a child. And then my own story was like how I overcame them. Mm. And so it's like my my lived experience is the theory that I'm presenting in the book. And so my story is the lived experience of the theory coming alive and helping you to move past your negative experiences, childhood, because as Carl Jung says, it's like a refrain in the book. You're mm. not what happened to you. You're who you choose to become. How would you describe your childhood? Um, Complicated, <laughs> very complicated. I would say that it was like most families. Um. There was lovely moments and my grandmother lived with us and it was uh, that was lovely. And she was a great cork woman and great fun. And she got me out of many uh, pickles in my life, you know, when I was in trouble and stuff. And she was just great, great to have around. And my mom was good fun as well and very loving. And my father was talented and uh, you know, a good writer and I admired him. But we also had addiction in the family. And so there was all that chaos with addiction. So you're always work. You're, you're never on something that's settled or anything that's consistent. You're always expecting something negative to happen in any moment. So that uncertainty is very damaging for your development as a child because you don't have those concrete senses of kind of things are like, you know, nice and nice and consistent here. And so you'd be scared to bring people home. You didn't know when you came home what you'd meet. You didn't know in the morning what you'd meet. You didn't know at night what would happen. And mm. so that was that 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 is certainly a disturbing thing to experience. But it was complicated. And I think a lot of people, what I noticed in my clinic is that a lot of people think that abuse is just this constant state of dysfunction, whereas really most of us live in that gray area where it functions away grand. Mm. And then there's moments of incredible dysfunction. A word that came up in the book is hypervigilance. Yeah. Right? Do you think that your father and your father was an addict and he was addicted to alcohol? Mm. Do you think that that created a sense of hypervigilance in the family. Yeah, it does. It creates a sense of hypervigilance in, in each individual in, in that system, I think, because I'm a mm. systems, I'm a systems, uh, you know, um, psychotherapist. So I looked at the, the systems that we exist in. It does create a sense of hypervigilance and, uh, and, and it can also create a sense of, um, I think, what, what Freud would call the compulsion to repeat. So I think you can get those two alternatives, kind of like you can be hypervigilant around things and mm. you're constantly tuned into things, or you can just replicate the familiarity of what you existed in. And Freud's theory, it's very interesting, like, you know, that you go out into relationships and you 
you have those, you, you know, I could easily meet, have met, as Freud would say, an alcoholic woman, let's say, and mm. bring that into my life. And then I drink and the two of us are caught in this alcoholic life. And Freud's idea is that that's the compulsion to repeat. But what you're trying to do is fix that relationship so that you can fix a relationship earlier in your life, like with your father, that is unfixable at this point. And so that you're always moving towards this desire to kind of like heal something uh, mm. through your behaviors. I mean, that's just an interesting theory, but yeah, I think you do become hypervigilant. I think you're constantly on a state of alarm. Your fire alarm is constantly going. You're look, you're reading situations. You're reading the behaviors of other people. You're looking at your father's mood. You're trying to see, was he drinking? You're trying to see, was the car there? You know, you're, you're just really hypervigilant. You're not in a state of ease. And even when I moved off, Connor, into my relationships, I was still hypervigilant for a long time in my family. And when I was living with my girlfriend, who became my wife when we first bought our house, I was still in that state of hypervigilance. I was still, there was an unease. The only way mm. I, I think I described it in the book is like, there's a stranger in the house and you don't know where they are. You know, there's a sense of something is quite not, you know, comfortable or there's, there's something where peace isn't really there. And so you're constantly in that state of like vigilance. Mm. Can I ask you, in terms of the alcohol consumption, was it binge drinking or no, was it, it every was, day? It's just every day, every day. At what age did it become apparent? Right? Oh, yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I'd ask my mother about this a, a lot, but I think it's what happens to a lot of children is that when they start getting a little bit older and it's like that Truman show, you know, you accept the reality you're born into and everyone accepts their family as normal. Mm. And then when you get into your early teenage years and start going to other people's houses and you may start dating people and you start to look at families and you start to see how they're functioning. It's through that. It's like what Heidegger says, like, you know, we only we only know things through our comparisons and seeing how things work. Mm. And so you see other families, and you see how those families work. And then you make an understanding and, and you become knowable about your own situation. You realize, hang on a second. So not every father drinks every day. Not every father loses their temper like that. Not every father, you know, does that. And so you start to become, yeah, I, I think early teenage years is when I became aware of it, that there was something, mm. there was a pr massive problem here. Do you think that alcohol affects mood? So the mood is completely unstable, so it can be erratic. Right? Yeah, of course, definitely. Yeah, Anything that alters your mood. Yeah, well, is going to move you towards addiction, first of all. Yeah. Um, so it's it's mood altering. But I always think personally, in my own experience with alcohol, and I don't really drink that much anymore, but um, I, it does alter your mood. It, it, I think it, it warps your personality. There's mm. no doubt about it. And I think it warps it in a way that pushes it towards really negative, um, you know, behaviors. And I do think it, it disturbs moods and it does deregulate your moods. And I think anyone who comes, to, you know, speaks to me about coming off alcohol and, and living the life without alcohol, it, they'd always say about how stable their mood is, mm. uh, you know, uh, and that's, I think, and that's the kind of iron, not irony, but it's the positive feedback loop in psychology that alcohol mm. is. You take it to satiate your mood. Mm. And it's the thing that disrupts your mood, you know, mm. so the thing that you're helping to, as you see it perceived to kind of like help you to relax your mood or just, you know, satiate whatever disturbance that there is there emotionally, you take alcohol and maybe momentarily it does that it helps to ease it for a moment, but it utterly sinks your life into chaos. And so mm. the thing that you're using to make yourself feel better is the thing that you're actually, you know, disturbing your and disrupting your life with. And that's the that's the real cycle of addiction. It's, that's the real paradox of addiction. That's the positive feedback loop of addiction. The thing that you use to make yourself feel better is the thing that makes you ultimately feel terrible. Um, at one point in the book, you expose your father's affair. Yeah. How did that play out? 
Well, it was very destructive for the entire family system, as you can imagine. Um, mm. You know, it was a very low point in my own personal life. Didn't know what to do with that. I was only a late teenager at that time. Discovered that I had some suspicions up to that point. And yeah, I just found that very difficult because, you know, you're sitting there with that. And I've met many clients in my own clinic, children who've sat there and told me, I know my father's having an affair. I caught my father on the phone. I saw images from my father's phone. You know, I meet mm. this quite often because of phones now, I think. Mm. Um and children know about it and they don't know what to do and that's mm. a terrible bind for a child to be in it was a terrible bind for myself to be in mm. um and i didn't really know how to manage that i sat with it for a while and it massively disrupted my peace and uh you know my understanding of the family i didn't know what to do with that information what do you do with it do you tell your mother so i went to him and and explained it to him what i what i knew and it just caused all sorts of problems and he didn't uh you know he he, he deflected it and so i told my older brother then and then he told my mom and the whole thing kind of collapsed then at that point. There was a fight that involved a baseball bat. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um how did that play out? Well, it was a yeah, it was a difficult environment and you had to be kind of tough to kind of like, you know, manage it. Um we had a fight one evening after all, at the end of all that one evening, my father, you know, he was quite aggressive, like, and he said something derogatory to me about I I was diagnosed with depression, let's say when I was 16, but I knew I wasn't depressed. I knew my environment mm. was depressing and, you know, internally, intrapsychically, I was okay. I was mm. disturbed because of what's going on, but I didn't think there was any chemical imbalance here. And, you know, and the psychiatrist prescribed uh, Prozac or whatever. I didn't even really take it too long, to be honest, because I didn't believe in the diagnosis at that time. And he made some disparaging comment about that, you know, mm. um, and I lost my temper. And he'd been kind of like challenging and been physical and all that kind of stuff over the years. And I just said, that's enough. And we got into a fight um, and, I, and he I walked past him and he punched me in the side of the head. And I turned around and I, and I said to my mom, just like, you know, back off here, I'm going to if he wants to fight that's what he's going to get I was probably 19, 20 and so I punched him and I actually broke my hand because I hit the wall as well at the same time I, he, he fell down and my hand was broken and I had to go to hospital with that and you know and I've got that scar in my hand and all that stuff and it's there for a life kind of reminder um and so that and you know those fights were kind of like an ongoing uh, ongoing thing in the in the in the family and certainly disrupted my joy and my sense of myself uh, at that age i wondered would i ever make it out you know would i ever make something of my life i knew i had these dreams about wanting to help people and wanting to go into you know psychology and doing that kind of stuff but i didn't know how that would actually happen mm. and um so yeah for a couple of years there i struggled to figure out what, what to do with myself there's lots of fights in families. There's constant yeah. stress, but it very rarely breaks into an actual fist fight. Yeah. yeah. There's a boundary and a barrier that was crossed at that point, right? Yeah. And it looks like from there, there was a 10-year gap where you didn't have any contact with your dad. And yeah. then you meet in the Shelburne Hotel. That's right, yeah. The, um, that was an extraordinary, extraordinarily moving piece in the book and can you tell me about that yeah um i was married now about a year this is 2009 and we were talking about having kids mm. and i was watching a documentary um on rory gallagher because i love the guitar i play the guitar and i'm big into music and all that and i was watching a documentary on rory gallagher and rory gallagher would have you know rung the house when we were 
children and you know because my father was a journalist and all that mm. and they would have known each other and so he would he would have rang the house and as a kid you know oh my god it's like fucking john lennon ringing the house you know because mm. i just so admired his guitar playing he was on another level of you know <laughs> that artistry and um i was watching a documentary the 1974 tour and watching cork and all that kind of stuff and rory walking you know, walking around cork and it's amazing you know when you're from cork small mm. little rural town and but this guy came out of the fucking wet landscape there is kind of, to me, it's just amazing. It must be like growing up in Seattle or growing, you know, growing up in Liverpool. Mm. Think that, you know, these guys, these four guys came from your area. Um, and so I was watching that documentary and then my father was interviewing him. And I became upset watching that because I had so many f- conflicted emotions. Mm. Admiration, you know, mm. was one of them, which is a complicated thing to feel about someone. Your last contact with, you know, you punched them and knocked them, knocked them down and stuff. Um, and... And then, and I was annoyed with him, and I was annoyed for the pain he had brought into our lives, the suffering, the needless pain, and all that. And I was thinking, if I'm going to have a kids, I got to work this stuff out. And so I, I, I decided to reach out to my uncle, and said, "Look, I think I, I meet my dad, you know, and uh, I'd like to meet him and see where we're at." And so he gave me his number. I texted him, and we met in the Shelburne. But that in itself was an incredibly sad meeting because I walked in to expect to see the man I knew ten years ago which was a big, strong man, you know, and what I was confronted with was, was with an old man. And so I didn't see, I didn't recognize him when I walked in and he didn't recognize me when I walked in. And so we walked past, I walked past him, he was sitting down and I went into the bar expecting to see him there. It wasn't there, I went into the, the you know, afternoon tea area and he, he was there and I kind of saw him and I kind of went to say to him like, you know, and he said to me, Richard, because he was surprised too. He was unsure too. And that was a very bizarre moment to have with a a parent your you know, child your, yeah. yeah your child because i'm the father now of three daughters and as i reflect on that you know i always think jesus you couldn't build a wall big enough to stop me to get to my child you know you, mm. you just wouldn't I'd, you know there's no the, the concept that my child could be out there in the world and i wouldn't know what they're doing mm. um to me is just incomprehensible really but um and so I sat down and talked to him and I knew there wasn't going to be any, he wasn't going to be contrite because I know his personality. I knew he wasn't going to be, I'm really sorry for that. And blah, blah, blah. I knew that wasn't going to be what I was going to get. I was going back for myself, really. I was going back because I was thinking if I'm going into my adult, adult world here, I'm going to be a parent. I don't want any of this churn, the simmering stuff about fighting my father and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to forgive him so that I could move on personally. So I, I could unpack it all and, and move on. And so it was a very cathartic moment in a lot of ways. It was very sad. It was there was an awful lot of loss there, um, but it was a it was a it was a sad meeting. There's no doubt about it. And I, and I left feeling very sad about the weight, the loss, and all that kind of stuff. But also his girlfriend, who he had the affair with, was sitting in the back of the restaurant, and so I, I saw her there. So I became kind of like you know annoyed by, about that, but I just I didn't express it, and I just left that to one side, and I and I just moved on. Do you think that his girlfriend's presence, A, affected it, and B, was a sense of be- was a betrayal? Yeah, probably both, yeah. Um, so you're, if, if you were um, in private practice, and you are today, and 14-year-old Richard Hogan came to you and explained... I meet him. I meet him many times. Do you? Yeah, I meet him many times, and he's not forty. He's it's often fourteen-year-old Jennifer. Yeah, you know, and um, I meet, I meet, I meet that many times, and um, and I meet the same sentiment many times. You know, where my mother said to me, "Don't tell him about dad because he knows dad." You know, I, I meet that a lot. 
you know, um, in the clinic and I'd meet girls sent to me, particularly, uh, I remember just recently enough, a teenage girl sent to me, if I tell you something, which I think needs to be looked at really, if I tell you something, do you have to report it? And I was like, well, it depends on the severity of it, but generally if it's about sexual abuse or violence, uh, if you're in, if you're in danger or, you know, I said, I will have to report that. But if it's something that is, isn't like that, I, we will keep confidentiality here. Um, and she had to really weigh that up, you know, but uh, it was really about her dad and, and about how aggressive he was. And mm. she didn't want, she didn't want to portray him. And that's the thing about families, you know, you don't, I, I even write in my book, and I, it's something that I have to work with every day. I feel like I betrayed my dad in some way, you know, and um, I have to deal with that. That That is something that's tough to deal with at times. Uh, and it's my family who kind of helped me out of those thoughts. You know, they're um, saying you're not, they explained to me, you're not betraying, you're, you're, you're explaining it so that other people can be helped through their experiences of it. Because that's what happens when you experience dysfunction. You, you blame yourself. You think you're the reason for it. And, mm. and so by telling my story, I was hoping that I might be able to reach other people and, and honestly, kind of the amount of emails and, and handwritten letters that I've received and messages through Instagram, it's kind of incredible mm. um, what people have been saying to me about what their experience of growing up, you know, in the full Irish childhood, as some people describe it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we, we can we can hold those secrets. And I meet those children uh, a lot who are disturbed by the secrets that they feel that they have to hold. Those secrets are like an acid. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. Toxic. Um. So I want to I want to ask you about psychology, right? There's there's so much fantastic stuff in this book. Um, before I do that, what what is the relationship with your father now? Well, up until the point the book came out, would have been maybe a contact once a year kind of thing. Um, and uh, you know, I rang him to tell him that the book was coming out, and RTE because I did an interview with Brendan O'Connor. They rang him to tell him that there's an interview going to going on air and you know your son is talking about his childhood growing up and you won't be named or anything but you know he will be referencing his relationship with you um and i tried to ring him just before that didn't get on to him and haven't heard since so your father mind. is your father's a writer so it, yeah i mean you, there's a 99 percent possibility here that he's read the book um yeah there is yeah good possibility a, a strong possibility i would say um intergenerational trauma so yeah. your family was subjected to, to something extreme mm. you're the you're breaking the link right yeah you said like you don't um negative legacy drink. yeah no i don't drink heavily i drink socially with friends and that now and again but i don't drink heavily i don't you know um i don't slam doors i'm not aggressive i'm not aggressive for my children mm. um i don't threaten them with violence you know and i'm not capricious in my moods you know, they've got a consistent guy that, that they can rely on. This is kind of who he is, you know, mm. he's good mood and he's he's in good form. But, you know, of course, they see that I can I can get annoyed with them if their behavior is a certain way or um, but so they, they have a they have a sense of a consistent parent. Both parents are very consistent. My wife is a very consistent and solid individual. And so that they get that sense of these people are easy to kind of understand. There's bar there's boundaries here. I mean, there's mm -hmm. rules in the family and there's rules for our behavior. My, I don't expect, I don't accept, you know, um, cheek from the kids to my wife and myself. That's just a boundary I don't accept. Mm -hmm. And I'd say to them, like, you know, we speak respectfully to you. You speak respectfully to us. And that's going to be a very happy system. The minute you start bringing, you know, trying to change that, um, 
things will change for you in the, in the family. And I, I, it's just something I know for myself working clinically. Teenage world is a, it's a brutal world if you don't get the boundaries in early in life. It can be a chaotic situation. And if kids are cursing at their parents and slamming doors, it's mm. just that it escalates and escalates and escalates into chaos. And I was just really thinking about my own legacy that my kids are going to grow up in a very um, loving environment, but an environment that has boundaries so that they can navigate the world nicely when they go off into the world. You know, and that was kind of like, that's kind of our philosophy, but I was breaking some negative legacy, but I also broke, uh, brought through some positive legacies. Like my parents, my father didn't take authority too, too, too seriously. I don't really take it too seriously either. And, um, you know, he'd often say to us on a sunny day in Cork, which wasn't too often, unfortunately, he'd say, let's go to the beach if it was sunny, no school. And we'd all head off to the beach. And that would be those would be wonderful moments. Mm. And I remember thinking as even as a kid, geez, I'm going to do this myself when I get older. And mm. I still do. And I do it with my kids, you know, and that's a positive legacy. And I would always say in the book, you know, look for the positive legacies and then just try to, like, you know, eradicate the negative legacy. So your kids like my kids say to me sometimes, you know, um, you were very annoyed about that, whatever. And I'm thinking, geez, you've no idea what it's, you know, to, <laughs> you've no concept of what annoyed looks like, you know, really they've no, it's just not in their understanding frame of, of reference. Yeah. Frame of reference of like, you know, how someone can get, how a, a father can really, you know, be a, a negative force in their life. And that's a good term of reference that they don't have in their head. And so you're just removing it from their reality. And so when they go off into their lives, that's not even something that they can bring forward because they never even, they've never even seen it. But they also have a model, a positive mm. model of masculinity. Exactly. They ha and that's what I'm trying to show them. Um, I'm sure I'm trying to show them that they, they, you need teeth in the world. Mm. I fundamentally believe that you need to have some teeth. I mean, mm. you know, I, I won't accept uh, certain behaviors, you know, and I, I'd be able to stand up for myself and, and all that. But you need to have compassion and you have to be able to have like, you know, you need to be caring and you need to be empathetic for people. So I teach them that. But a lot of a lot of psychotherapists would say to me, all I want my child is to be is compassionate. And I'd say to them, Jesus, that's mm. not the only thing you want your child to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it's lovely to be compassionate. But, you know, growing up in my family environment, what I'd always say is it gave me some teeth. Mm. I never feel like I'm, uh, you know, going to be dominated by somebody in a conversation or, you know, whatever. I never feel like someone's going to get something, you know, and make me run away scared of it because I dealt with uh, a bully a lot in my life. And so, my kids don't have a bully, but I try to teach them how do you manage bullies. Mm. I would talk to I would talk to them about it, and I would give them examples, and we'd have something called bully school, mm. and I'd say mean things to them. I'd say, you know, if I said to you, Connor, your hair is crap, right? How do you respond? And my daughter would be like, "Geez, why would someone say that to you?" And I was like, "Exactly, why would someone say that to you?" And if you figure that out, and you don't believe them, well, then mm. that's just words, and now you're powerful. And there's a brilliant case study in the book where you are working with a girl, right, um, a teenage girl. And she asks the question, why, why do they hate me? Mm. Right. And I'm exactly, I, it was, Jesus, I, I meet that so much. Mm. I meet that honestly now every week, at least I meet it talking to teenage girls in particular. Mm. Why don't they like me? So they've internalized the words of others as meaning something is deficient and deficit. There's a deficit in them. And my work is always to explain to them, well, why would anybody say something negative like that? Mm. Would it because they want to put you down and make you feel how negative they feel? Is it because they might be a little bit jealous of you? Mm. You know, and I meet beautiful, stunning teenage girls sitting there thinking I'm ugly and I'm this and that because they've internalized the words of what's happened to them. 
and it's, and social media, of course, is uh, to play here because everything is filtered, everything's not real, and everything's just like this fake existence. Mm. And it's it's presenting the best side of of people, and so it's so important that we help our teenage girls in particular to mm. see that's that's not real, and stop comparing yourself because that's the thief of so much of your joy. Mm. And when someone says something negative to you, that is a comment on them, not you. Mm. And the more you get kind of like, you know, in tune to that, the more you can actually start to kind of thrive in the world and start saying to yourself, well, if Connor says to me, Richard, Jesus, you're very this or that, it has no meaning because I don't believe you. I believe mm. I'm something. If I've got that fundamental belief, well, it can't crack me there. It can't disturb me because that's Connor. And shouldn't Connor really be pitied for, for his efforts to put me down? Because if Connor was happy in himself, he wouldn't be doing that. And you know, when you equip your children with this stuff, it makes them ferocious out there. Like, you know, it makes them formidable that they're not going to be so easily targeted and not so easily, you know, uh, malleable and, and agreeable. Mm. And you also mentioned that people, and we're talking about girls, they target something they see in somebody else that they either don't like in themselves or perhaps there's some kind of, that, that creates this some kind of envy there because yeah. the young girl you were talking about was, was a model, yeah. was, was potentially going to be a model. And she is a could, model, actually. No? Yeah, which could create an enormous amount of envy and make, yeah. obviously, the other girls feel... Or I meet a lot of girls who are very bright hmm. and uh, and aesthetically attractive, let's say, and they're very bright. I mean, that comes in for incredible scrutiny hmm. uh, because not only are you beautiful, but you're also smart. Hmm. And so, like, why do you get to have all of that? Hmm. You know, and I'm scared that my boyfriend might like you. So if yeah. I put if I put you down and comment and talk about you, because reputational damage is like what you're trying to do there, make someone feel terrible and say nasty mm. things about them. Um, and I'm, my, my job is to say, you, you need a few tools here to manage that stuff. Because mm. if you internalize it, then she's living rent-free in, in your head for the rest of your life. Mm. And you're going around bullying yourself. But if you work past that stuff, you know, you, you're powerful and, and, and you see her words for what they are. Once you see a bully for what they are, they lose all their power. Mm. Um. There's a line in the book, memory can provoke a physiological response in the oh, present. Yeah. Mm. Um, that landed like a punch when I was reading it, right? Because as we, as adults, we move through life, we'll encounter situations that we maybe we have a panic attack and there's a physiological response and maybe we yeah. don't know where it comes from. But yeah. you draw a line back to something, perhaps in adolescence or perhaps yeah. in childhood. In your you, memory, yeah. 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 But sure, yeah. I mean, sure, I'm sure we've all done this. You know, you've been sitting mm. there on the couch, let's say when you're an adolescent or you're older, or you're in your 20s, and you recall a moment from a night out you had and something you said when you were like, let's say, inebriated. Mm. You kind of all of a sudden you get like a red flush. Mm. You, know, you, you, you know what I'm talking about? The embarrassment mm. comes over you. And you're like, when yeah. you're sitting here watching TV, and all of a sudden you're like, how could I have said that to someone? So the memory is just like, you know, provoking a physiological response that you're becoming flushed. And, you know, and so that that happens unconsciously to us a lot of the times. We're encountering our memories and we're going to go, why did that account? Why did that conversation have so much? Why did that person bring up so much for me? Mm. Why did what they say bring up so much for me? Um, and that's like, you know, really important for you to think about about some of the memories that you hold there and then to unpack them so that they have no longer they no longer have a hold anything over you so that you're not getting whacked mm. you know, out of nowhere. You also talk about anxiety and in particular excessive worrying. And there's another line um, where you talk about the fear of being blindsided mm. right now. I know what you're talking about there, and mm. I think most people who are generally worriers know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It wasn't until you said it and oh my God, 
is this? Absolutely. <laughs> it's the fear, right? Yeah. So of something uh, happening that that can't. Well, it's a belief. Unaware. See, underneath that, Connor, there's a paradigm that worry is a is a shield, mm. and so worry protects you from being blindsided. And mm. so, if I'm not worrying, I'm the happy tourist whistling away and then i'm mm, going to get whacked by an yeah. articulated truck and so if i'm constantly worrying mm. i'm in a heightened state of vigilance that we talked about and mm. therefore i can't get whacked and also when life doesn't really work out well for me at mm. least i wasn't up there happy enjoying myself i'm down here and all this murky worry so you know that's that's a much better position to be in so you don't fall down all those paradigms just steal your joy mm. And what I wanted to mention really importantly is that there are strategies and case studies in this book to help you yeah. deal with that and overcome it. You also have the genogram. Yeah. Um, and tips at the end, at the end of each paragraph, at the mm -hmm. end of each chapter, there's like tips and little skills and tools and how to develop those and how to, whatever I was talking about in the chapter, let's say what we're just talking about there about worry and all that, mm. how to be, how to less worry and how to be more aware of your worries mm. and then how to kind of like debunk them and, and like, you know, dismantle the logic of it so that you can live without that kind of particular paradigm. Mm. What are the big five personality types? Uh, so you have agreeableness, which mm. is like you, you go along with things. You have conscientiousness, conscientiousness, mm. you have, um, openness mm. you have neuroticism and mm. you have extroversion mm. so they're the big five personality traits and uh, would you say because when i was looking at them and reading them i was thinking well okay i, I could be a combination of all of these things. oh yeah there's, you there's, can there's, yeah, yeah 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 there's two that i what have you higher levels of i would say um openness yeah and neuroticism okay um, and the research would show you that if you looking to see, well, what, what two of those would actually improve my life? It would be openness and extroversion, mm. right? And what would I want to diminish in my life if I want to have happiness and bring more, you know, kind of peace into it? It would be reducing down neuroticism. Mm. And the thing, and the thing about it is, traditionally psychology would have said, you know, once you figure out what your personality trait, that's a concrete thing. Mm. And we know now through scientific new research that that's not true. That you can leverage. I can be very conscientious at things, and I can be very lack in conscientiousness when I'm not interested in something you know what I mean and I can be very mm. extroverted and some days I can be a little bit less extroverted mm. and and I would say just you know I'm, I am an open person um I can be very agreeable and I can be very disagreeable at times and it just depends on you know what it is in the situation and so it's like figuring figuring out what you have high levels in and what that means for your life and then how to you know leverage one over the other if you're if you're, say, neurotic, you know, it's and your high levels of it, it just means that your mood is kind of fluctuates a little bit and it might be pinged on something that's external. Mm. And it's like, well, you can look at that and start to kind of like really figure out how do I bring a little bit more balance into my life about who I think I am, getting mm. a better idea of, of the self. And so then it's not it's not moving around on an external stuff. And I would also say, and I work with a lot with this with clients, and I always identify the personality traits first. And I work with a lot of people who would have high levels of neuroticism. And I would say as a, as a key, you have to identify. Now, this is what I said. So you have to identify what are the things that provoke your neuroticism, right? Mm. And that for a lot of people would be like, you know, cheating on their spouse or, you know, doing some, taking a risk or doing something bad. And it's like, you've got to avoid those behaviors. Like you have to really avoid behaviors that provoke your neuroticism because it's pouring fuel onto a, a simmering fire mm. and it's going to 
burn for a long time once you once you provoke it it's going to go and maybe i'm going to do this maybe i'm going to do that and the voice starts going well you got to you got to learn at this point you're like what is it that provokes it and then stay the hell away from it because that will give it bring a lot of peace into your life you talk about happiness and wellness right um your definition of happiness involves the gap between the internal and the external and four pillars can you yeah. expand on that yeah well uh, when I'm talking to clients, they often ask them, you know, well, what is happiness? Mm. And they're very struck. They, they, they can't define it. Mm. Um, and so then you're chasing a fugazi. I mean, what the hell are you chasing if you don't know what it is, right? Mm. And so they're searching this idea and I'd say to them, well, what, what do you think, if you were to describe, what what would look, being happy look like for you? Because mm. it's a different thing for everyone, all of us. Mm. Sitting in a dark darkened room listening to death metal would be my idea of like hell, possibly. Mm. You know, but... um for someone else it's their heaven right and so i get them to think about well what is what is it well they might say um i can say yes and no to things i have more agency in my life and um perhaps it might even be i have more security financially and a better relationship with my wife and get on better with the kids and say like, okay now so you've got a good idea that there's your internalized idea of happiness now mm. external what's going on in your actual lived life where there's an incongruence between that and what, you know, and so they'd say, well, my relationship with my wife is pretty bad. Uh, the kids, I don't really get on with them. I, I find them, you know, particularly difficult and I'm not, you know, I'm not very secure financially. And I find that I have to say yes to everything. And so as you, as you can see, there's a big disparity between the internalized ideas. It's like, well, all you have to do to start here is getting a little bit more like an astronaut and figuring out which one needs most work. And I'd say, well, straight away, I could see your, your relationship with your wife and your family is paramount. Mm. That is, that is the key pillar as we're looking at there family mm. and so start to look at that first because all the research we show is our connection with our loved ones is meaning making that we do in life and so get the get that right that's a pillar of your life mm. and then with your job i mean you figure out that there do you want to stay in the world you know you're figuring out then your, your relationship with your work and then your relationship with yourself which is the most important thing mm. i mean that that probably needs to go first then family because those two things are interlinked mm. how you perceive yourself and talk to yourself and then how you connect with your relationships all of that stuff is really important and so they're the, they're the kind of like the pillars your mm. relationship with work your relationship with yourself your relationship with your family they're the they're they're like vital vital um pillars of like you know self being self value and self worth and and happiness and when it comes to well-being, you, you, you mentioned five things that I think are going to land with people as well. Number one, autonomy and agency. Number two, openness. Number three, connection. Number four, writing your own narrative. Yeah. And then five is purpose and meaning. And what I was hearing here is a self-directed life. Yeah. You right? can't. This is it, Connor. You can, I always say when I meet people in my clinic and the, they come in and their shoulders are down and they're just a bit battered by life, you know, and. Mm. And I'd say, to, and I'd hear their story. And what I hear is a lack of agency. Hmm. I hear a lack of autonomy. I hear a belief that they have to kind of shape shift to fit into some other person's idea about who they are. And I see all that powerlessness. And they seem so disempowered. And when I when I outline those to them, those five ideas of autonomy and all that stuff and agency, and you're right that that's self directed. When you're self directed now, and you're self and you're self motivated, and you're moving towards something that you want to bring into your life, all of a sudden that disempowerment just leaves and you kind of see i'm i'm moving towards something and i did it myself you know and that's mm. the story when i was 20 i felt like that i didn't feel like there was anywhere i felt like there was no line on the horizon and as i started to move i could see holy crap i'm bringing stuff into my life here that's really that i want to bring into my life and i could feel my levels of 
joy coming back into my life because I began to move, you know, and I mm. began to bring things into my life. And and that that's what I think that we all need. It's very hard when you're being fake. And I would always say, you know, if you're trying to think of who masters you, think mm. of who you can't talk honestly about, mm. you know, and it's like, that's who you a good can't criticize. Yeah. Who you can't criticize. Yeah. Because mm. if you're talking honestly, you probably going to criticize them. Right. Um, and so, you know, that would give you a good indication of who you're shape shifting for. If they're your boss, that's normal enough. Right. Um, you know, again, if, if it's family members, that's not so normal. Right. And so you, mm. you gotta, you gotta look at those kind of like relationships and start thinking about, I, I can't really love myself here if I'm not being honest about who I am. And authenticity is such a, a key thing, you know, and that's the that's the that's the gap between the external and the internal self. If what you're projecting is not what you want to project, mm. the self-loathing and resentment, that's the seeds of all that real negative stuff. about. And you begin to dislike the people who like that fake person because they've, as you see it, they force you to be this character. And how could they like a fake person? And so mm. you become resentful of it, you know, your world around you is this fake world. And it's like the more you're authentic, the more you're actually living yourself and your autonomy, your agency, the more powerful you feel, the more you begin to love yourself, the more you begin to respect yourself. There's a big problem. There's a problem in the corporate space and in the business world where so many people work with A, autonomy and B, authenticity. Mm. Right. Um I would argue is an epidemic of it. It's very difficult in a hierarchical st structure or system to be autonomous. You're yeah. receiving top-down orders, number one. And number two, it's very difficult to be your authentic self. You have to be business and professional, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is causing, anecdotally causing and fueling part of this epidemic of mental health that we're experiencing. Um, I think on top of that, though, as well, you're right, Connor. I think on top of that, though, it's like what uh, Ted Kaczynski is not a great man to be quoting, but the uni bomber, the uni bomber, but he had a good uh, paper where he wrote about the power process. I don't know if you've ever read it. And what he's, oh, yeah. what, what he's looking at there is, and I know it's not great to be quoting the words of a maniacal uh, mass murderer, but you know, um, he was a genius. He Clearly was, he was, yeah. a, he was a genius. And um, what he's pointing to is the, the amount of disillusionment out there in the system with people working jobs that they have no interest in working. And I think that feeds into that lack of autonomy. You kind of fall into your college degree. You fall into a job. You mm. fall. You might even fall into your marriage. And all of a sudden, you know, you're 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 deep into your life. And the, there can be an incredible disquiet because you don't have any agency in the work you're doing. You have to feed the, because we all move towards hierarchies in this uh, homo sapien life of ours. Mm. And so if you're not in the hierarchy, if you're not up in the hierarchy, you have very little uh, autonomy or agency. And then your family might require, desperately require you to keep that job because of the, mm. you know, keep the whole thing going in your mortgage. And so there can be massive disquiet there. And, and I think that's probably what the, you know, what the real epidemic is there. Mm. And it's trying to get kids to make better decisions when they're younger, before they start out in life and to think mm. about the life ahead. And that's kind of what the, why I wrote the book as well. It wasn't just for people who've come out of dysfunctional families. It's like, think about people you meet and people think about the people you go into a relationship with and think about the work that you do and think about your future self, always be working in the interest of that future person who's just waiting to happen, you know, and you can put the structures in now and really, really thrive in those later on, or you can just like bumble through it and mm. see how you get on. You know, the one word that jumped out and you mentioned it in the book, I, the feeling that I had after reading it was catharsis. Okay. Um, good. If before we wrap up, if I wanted to ask you about social policy, right? If you were the advising the HSE or working with the HSE and the oh, government Jesus. on the current state of our mental health services, what would you prioritize and what would you focus on? 
Oh, it's a very good, very, very good question. I would immediately give the Mental Health Commission statutory uh, regulation powers there to implement the fortnight uh, changes that they've come up with. I would I would look at the pillars here. You need good clinical leadership that's lacking, right, in the mm-hmm. HSC. You need robust governance overlooking those, that leadership. You need good fund, ring fencing of funding because we hear all this money and we have the money, but it just, there's no governance of it. And so mm. it's just like, it's just a soundbite to put on TV from politicians to say, we have 147 million going into the, uh, into cams currently. You're going to go, well, people mm. are reporting that that service is terrible. And I would have, um, I, I mean, it's, it's incredible to say it, good ICT systems for, uh, you know, for, to, to be able to perform the level of the, of the, uh, of the service that you require, but also I'd immediate, I mean, there's so much, it's, it's such a deep question. There's so much that I'd have to change. I would, I would look at a model. I mean, if any, if you're ever trying to bring in change, you've got to look at a model that's working. It's mm-hmm. like going over to another country and saying, well, how is Scotland doing it? They're pretty doing it pretty well. And I would say, first of all, we have a good model here in Ireland and that's John of God's. And what do they have? They've got good clinical leadership. They've got uh, good funding. They've got good ICT systems and they've got robust governance. So mm-hmm. they're the four pillars that we need. And we need to also look at like, you know, we're following a consultant psychiatrist model. That model is dead by 20 years. So we're following an old fashioned, out of date, anarchistic model. And we need to get rid of that. We need to have multidisciplinary teams. We need to have, we need to hire at the highest level here. We need to get really, really, you know, we need to get really dynamic and creative staff into these to be clinic, you know, to be the leaders of um, these multidisciplinary teams. And we have to stop uh, the practices of like it's a postcode lottery currently we need to standardize the service that's out there so kids in waterford get the mm. same service as the kid in, in south dublin i mean there's uh, it is there's there's a lot there connor to but that would be fundamentally i would be moving it out of the consultant psychiatrist model i'd be moving it into a multidisciplinary team mm. I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be i'd be securing that we get really good staff in there and good clinical leadership i would ring fence money around this thing to make sure that that we get a standardized service across the, the country so that kids that go into cams on and carry are going to get the same stuff as kids up in up in up in dublin and um i would make sure that risk assessments are better better follow up better care i mean and i would try to reduce i mean it's hard now but reducing waiting lists that's a that's a huge thing for families and then a huge thing is consistency of the service that they get when they go in there they'll meet the same team for the for however long they're in there that the same team is going to meet them so mm. currently they're meeting different um therapists every time they go in and what they describe to me is like it's like groundhog day they're going in to describe the story over and over again that creates hopelessness. Mm. You go in there, you know, at your most vulnerable and you want to meet a system that's kind of going to give you hope and give you some help and mm. and, and move you towards, like, you know, some resolution here. Well, what you're getting as a service is a chaos. And so it's moving you towards less hope. And, you know, that's, I mean, it's a big fix, but it's it's definitely doable. But the chaos must be upsetting for the professionals and the clinicians. It is, it. yeah. It is, of course. Then no, no one gets, no one goes in there thinking, I, I can't wait to work in a chaotic system and, and disturb families. You know what I mean? That's mm. everybody in there is motivated, I would say, through really good, most people, through really good motivations there and, mm. and want to help and, and, and really be a benefit to families when they come in there. But the system is bankrupt. The system is old fashioned and they're trying to provide a good service when the system itself that they're in is mm. broken. And so it's, they can't. And so that's why you have so much. That and that's a key point. That's why you have so much turnover of staff. That's why you have such inconsistency of the service because there's people are burnt out and they leave and they go somewhere else. They work privately. They're like get getting out of this chaos. I'm gonna mm. work privately. I get that all the time. People writing to me asking me, can they join my clinic? Because they're like they're in the they're in cams and it's just burnout stuff. Mm. Um 
you have two books. You can't name your own, even though it is absolutely brilliant. I'm not just saying it because you're here. Give me two books that you would recommend to somebody that has a recreational interest in psychology and you find you found inspirational. Even one. Ooh, good. Two two books. You can't name Home is Where the Start is because I've already named it about five times. <laughs> Thanks. Parents, but it is no, a good start. <laughs> it is a good start. Um, the Body Keeps the Score. Mm. I like that. I must say, I like that. And Thinking Fast and Slow. Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, brilliant book. Yeah. You'd have to be a bit academic now to really kind of get out of Daniel Kahneman's book. I mean, he's a Nobel Prize winning um, economist, but mm. it's a brilliant book. The Body Keeps the Score would be a good read. Now, I don't agree with a lot of what The Body Keeps the Score says, mm. but it is a very good book, I have to say. It's a very interesting read. I enjoyed it, but I was enjoying it kind of going, don't agree with that, don't agree with that, don't agree with that, because mm. he's kind of putting forward the medical model, mm. you know, and psychiatry really wanted to grab onto this and say, here's a Bible, because it was pushing medicine, right? Mm. Um, and medicine has its place, of course, but... You know, they were really, because you know, psychotropically wise, they were saying, this is the Bible and this is what we must follow because, you know, the body keeps the score is talking about the importance of medicine. Uh, and But it's just a very interesting read. Those two for me, uh, Jonathan Haidt's The Happiness Hypothesis, that's pretty good. Um, I mean, I read them, I read books, I'm, I'm reading them all the time. Mm. So I'm always trying to keep up to date and see, you know, who's got the best ideas and, and anything new. I, I liked... Um, I can't think of the name of it now. It was about AI. I like all that stuff about AI at the moment. Um, I can't think of the name of it now. Jeffrey Gray's um, anxiety books are pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. But a lot of it is written for like, you know, a peer review, which means it's not accessible. Mm. But I like Jonathan's work. I think he's interesting. Um, last question. Where can, where can people find you, Richard? You'll find me on Instagram. Mm. Yeah. Official Richard Hogan. That's my Instagram. And I put a lot of stuff up there and I talk about stuff and I put my articles up there and I give bits of advice. Now, I should put more up there, but I'm just so busy. You know, it's 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 hard. And, and my publishing company do ask me to do more videos and do that. But I just don't have the time, to be honest. And uh, I'm not a massive lover of social media, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But um, I do see it's a great way to communicate with people. And it's a great way to get your message to people mm -hmm. very directly. Um, and so I need to get better at that. And maybe when I'm less busy, I'll and start getting better thing, but I do put a lot up there and as much as I can. And I do talk to, I do come back to people when they send me messages you know, and I do respond to them. And I, and I do like that aspect of being accessible um, because I, th I, I just think people who are at a certain level are so inaccessible. And mm -hmm. I've, this is a philosophy I've always believed and it's probably to my detriment, but the real people, the people who are really, you know what I mean by real, the real people, the people who are not in it for just money, the people who are actually in it for like, you know, helping people and believe they've got something, a message to give and they believe that they can help. Mm. They're always accessible. That's what I found in my life. You know, when I did my PhD and when I was working in very high level academics, I could see the ones who weren't accessible and I could see the ones who were accessible. And in my training as a psychotherapist, I could see the lecturers who were accessible, who were trying to help you with their ideas and give you some other ideas and point, pointing you towards literature and, you know, following up on things. They're the real people. And I like to think of myself as a real person. And so I am accessible. Um, and if you do message me, I do come back to those. I can attest to that. Dr. Richard Hogan, thank you so much. It's thank you, been educational and an absolute privilege. Thank you very much. Lovely chatting to you. Pleasure.